0: The folks here are making a huge, huge commitment um, to Jesus and to follow Jesus, and I, I know a lot of you have come out to support in that. I want to give a brief, um, a brief talk about the significance of baptism. I need my—I'm going to have my computer come up here because I want to show you on the screen, and I want to take you through the Bible a little bit because if you um, You know, from a Western point of view, someone is, you know, to show that they're following Jesus or to show that they're a Christian, they're being dunked underwater and brought back up. Think about how weird that would be, especially if you're not, if you haven't been raised in Christianity. And then honestly, even if you have, this might be one of those things where someday in your adult self, if you were raised this way, you kind of stop and go, wait a second, why do we do that? That is kind of odd, isn't it? If you think about it. Why do? To show that, to kind of, is this like a weird hazing situation? Is this like an initiation type of a thing? So if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, this might be a really foreign idea. Or you might at best have maybe one biblical accurate idea. But I want to give you a little bit of some history here. It goes back to the very beginning. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, if you look up on your screen, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here we have this interesting line, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you've got this earth that is without form and void. Tohu wa bohu means it's uninhabitable, it's unusable at this point, a bad thing, right, in the beginning. Um, Darkness is over it. And there are these waters, but the Spirit of God is hovering over these waters. And from that point, this unfolding of God fixing the problem of tohu wabohu, he goes to, he makes it habitable. He brings form to a formless earth, and he brings forth everything that we would need to thrive and survive to where there can be inhabitants. And then at the kind of the zenith, day six, we come down here, And God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and every creeping thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And look at this. God blessed them. This is day six. And God said to them, this is what I want for you guys, for you humans, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the heavens and everything that lives. And the idea here is that mankind was created to be God's vice regents, to rule and reign. the, The idea of images of God is to rule and reign as royalty, as um, as Lewis puts it, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, royalty on the earth that would rule on God's behalf and in the way that He would, the way that He would rule, that we would rule by God's character. And that comes from this seventh day, that the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them, the seventh day was finished. Uh, seventh day God finished his work. He stopped, that's the word Shabbat, it means stop or to cease from working. And then he what he had done and he rested. And the idea is that he's resting With mankind on the seventh day. And from this idea of rest, it doesn't mean simply like, I'm resting now. It means fulfillment. It means, um, imagine if you didn't have to do anything else to feel comfortable in your own skin. Imagine if um, you were completely fine and okay as you are. There was nothing left to do to gain more prominence, or to feel better about yourself, or to prove to anything else you are done, you're complete, you're there. Seventh day, God's presence. And from this place of completeness, the word is shalom or wholeness, from this place of completeness, we can rule and reign because we know God, because we spend time with Him. That's, that's the idea. But you guys know probably the rest of the story. Does mankind succeed or fail? They fail. Yes. And um, and then something it gets so bad. Let's see if I can do this with a microphone. That in chapter six we get to the point where it's so bad that, God, the, that um, God says, "My my spirit shall not abide with man forever. It shall be about 120 years." It doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't mean that we mankind will live to 120 years old. I think it's 120 years till God's going to bring water on the earth again. Um, Look, the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was so great. Think of this, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That means that your mind in a resting neutral position goes to evil naturally. You just, you're so filled with it. You're so prone to it. You're so exercised in it that you are perverted through and through. That's, that's the idea. Kind of a spiritual form of tohu and bohu. And so God has a plan. He brings waters again in, in uh, chapter 7. It says... Um, in the 600 years of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th month of that day, the fountains of the deep burst, the windows of heaven were open, rain fell on, on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and on the same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the, Noah's wife, and their three wives and sons, they entered the ark, and at the end of this whole thing, um, the waters have covered the earth again, so we're back in a sense to Genesis chapter 1. Or waters are over this formless, uninhabitable earth. And now the idea of waters, the Bible is bringing it back around again to add some definition to it. At first it was this idea that out of this water, out of this death, God's bringing life. Now he's bringing water to bring judgment and salvation. It's got this, they're passing through it. For some it means death, it means judgment, it means cleansing, but it also means a new life, kind of a death and a resurrection going on. So the idea of water in the Bible is holding many meanings in one space. Judgment and mercy start coming together here. Judgment and cleansing start coming together here. And then at the end, we see Noah is kind of like the new Adam. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some, oh, well, let me back up. I'm missing a great part here. What, What do we see hovering over the waters again? Somewhere in here. Um, there's a dove. A dove flew out of the ark to hover over these waters again. So we're being pointed back to the Hebrew mind. The Bible is meditation literature. It's meant to point you back or it's meant to bring an old concept back up to your mind again, but yet with more definition and more mass to it this time around. So here's a cue or a hyperlink that points back to what we've already read. The dove is, is, in other words, God's going to move in to bring form again, and he's going to do it through a new Adam. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal um, and some of every clean bird and offering burnt offering to the altar. And God says, when he smells the pleasing aroma, notice this is, it's the worship of Noah that brings his wrath down, even though the waters might have abided, or abated. It's the worship of Noah that brings God's wrath down, and he says, never again will I curse the ground again. And look what he says. It's almost copy-paste from chapter 1. God said to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, let's try this again. Here we go again. Let's try this another time. And Noah, as you know, the story goes, God uses another person named Abraham, and they he leads his Jacob leads one of Abraham's sons leads his family into Egypt. Egypt uh, Israel becomes slaves in Egypt, and here they are facing waters again. The Lord God said to Moses, "Tell the people as they're leaving, as they're exiting out of Egypt, as they're leaving." God says to, to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn, to, to turn back and encamp in front of uh, Pi-hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed towards the people. At first they said, fine, let them go at the last plague, the horrible plague. Um, where Passover happened, and they were set free out of Egypt. Well, here, his mind changes again. He says, let's go after them again. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, king of Egypt. He pursued the people. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They say to Moses, it's because it, it, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us up to the wilderness? So they're starting to doubt And Moses says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. This is what's about to happen. You're about to get an indelible mark in your national imagination of what salvation is. The salvation of Yahweh. And so the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to move forward. So there's the Egyptian armies behind them. The sea is in front of them. And God says, March forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, and the, that the people of Israel go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after, after them, and I, will, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And you know the story. Moses stretches out his hand. The sea parts in two, and Israel goes into the midst of the sea, and they come out the other side. Again, it's a form of deliverance for some. It's a form of judgment for others. Pharaoh and his army, the sea crashes back onto them, and they perish there in the sea. So again, we're brought back around to this idea of water, meaning both death and also new life. And this was such an indelible moment in, the, in uh, the imaginations of Israel that throughout the prophets, I could take you through Isaiah and Jeremiah, they use this exodus motif to predict a new exodus and a, from a new Moses. But I'll just take you right there. Then we get to Matthew chapter 3. John's baptizing people. John the Baptist is baptizing people, a baptism of repentance. And he says, someone's coming after me that is better than me. He's so much more worthy than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And to John's own shock, Jesus came down from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him because it didn't make sense. This is a baptism of repentance. What are you... What are you doing here, right? And John says, I, I probably should be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus answered, let it be so, for thus it is fitting to, this is one of Matthew's favorite words, fulfill all righteousness. In other words, fulfill all that the Old Testament has been alluding to, to this new Moses, this new Exodus, to fulfill all everything that is right. And look what happens. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God, there's our dove again, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, a new creation. The Spirit of God is there again to bring another salvation, but through not through Adam, not through Noah, not through Abraham, not through Moses, but now through the one that all of those guys and all of those events were pointing to, were pointing to Jesus. And in a couple of ways, on one hand, he's doing this to kind of call his shot. He's saying, What's, what it's going to take for me to redeem the world and to bring you all out of death is for me to be plunged into death itself and conquer it and be raised raised from the dead. That's what it's going to take. And he's basically saying, mission accepted. I can do this. But also, notice he's getting strength in, in an identity form to be able to handle everything that Jesus is about to face. Look, he gets this incredible affirmation word from his father. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And right after that, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And look what the devil says to him. He says, if you are the Son of God, where did, we just learn, where did he just get that identity? Back at his baptism. So this is a side note to all you baptizees. Expect maybe some other voices after this. You can bank on It might come to you and say, does God really love you? You might be challenged maybe even more so. After this act of what you're about to do, Jesus certainly was. He received this affirmation, and from this identity, he got the strength to face the tempter. And yet, and the tempter goes right after his identity. Are you really, though? Did God really say, does that remind you of something? The Garden of Eden, chapter three of Genesis. Did he really say? Challenges God's word, challenges God's character. So, those of us that have already been baptized, those that are being baptized, we know that this does not mark the end of striving or psychological warfare or spiritual warfare. This does not mark the end of that. So, what does it mean then? What does it mean? Uh, You know, yes, we're fulfilling something in a long line of fulfillment, but Jesus was baptized to fulfill it all. Why should we still be baptized? Well, um, there's a few different things I want to… I want to draw your attention to a few different layers of the meaning of this. One, it's an outward display of an inward reality. What shall we say? Are we to continue in the arena or the according to the economy of sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it or be moved by it or motivated by it or controlled by it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. On the one hand, a Christian is saying, I am part of a new reality, I'm, not, I'm no longer motivated or get life by the economy of sin. I've died to that, and I'm now living with the same life force in me that Jesus had. When we start Matthew, we're going to discover that there was something about Jesus that drew people to him. People, we, Jameson and I were talking about this this morning. We, we both actually started re-watching The Chosen, And one of the things, if you haven't seen it, one of the things that's so beautiful about it is the person of Jesus is just someone that you want to be around. James and I were talking about that. Like, I just want to be around that guy. And that's really the sense you get in the Gospels, that there was something so healthy about Jesus, so whole about Jesus, that people thought to themselves, the closer I am to this guy, the healthier I will start to be too. He will, if I'm around his orbit I'm going to start to be a better person. I'm going to start to be the person that I know that I was meant to be. He was, something about him, death and sickness kind of flee from, from, from this guy because he's so healthy that's the idea here. When we're baptized, we're saying, I'm in Christ. I have that same quality of life in me. It doesn't mean that you don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean that you might not fall into it from time to time. But it means you're no longer motivated or moved by it. It's, not, it's no longer what gets you up out of bed in the morning. It doesn't drive your life forward like it used to. Now, I am complete in Christ. I've got that same access to the Father that Jesus had, that same intimacy with the Father that Jesus had. Nothing's holding me back away from God or that seventh day Sabbath rest anymore. I can be like Adam and Eve in God's presence in fulfillment and vitality and absolute wholeness and rest. Stop striving. Stop trying to save myself. That's what this means. When... People get here, they're basically saying, I'm not trying to save myself anymore. This is not uh, to save me. This is because I am saved. I, am, I have access to God. I have access to that health. So you're identifying in that way, and you're basically saying, this is who I am. This is the philosophy that drives me from this point forward, okay? Secondly, it's a declaration of intent, to adopt a uh, crucifixion-resurrection lifestyle, or what the ancients called a rule of life. Um, You can look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body, that is literally your body, soma, the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died uh, has been, or, uh, excuse me, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. And this becomes not just, so usually we, we in the Western world, we stop with, with the first point. This is who I am. But it's also in the, in the ancient world, in the early church, it also declared the, uh, a way of living. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to die to the sin that's still kind of lodged in the muscle memory of my body. I'm going to practice dying to it because I believe that when I do, newness of life or resurrection life will be brought into my body. Look what he says. This is very practical. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, Because you'll start obeying it. Do not present your members. He's talking about your body. Your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those that have been brought from from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. This is a way of practicing. Let me show you one more scripture that might help. I think this is just so well said. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. 10. This is Paul's way of living. He says, I'm always caring about in my body, always. In other words, not just when I'm baptized, but as a way of life, I'm always caring about in my body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, the Christian says, the more I put God and others first, the more life will come to my family, the more life will come to my community, the more friendships will be reconciled, the more good things will start to happen. This is evangelism for the Christian. This is the way our characters infect the world around us. It is this, um, what scholars call, a cruciform way of living, a rhythm that has death that brings life, death that brings life. So not only are you baptizees today proclaiming that you're with Christ in a new reality, but you're also saying, this is the way I'm going to live not as a way to get, be closer to God, but as a rule of life because I will get more life out of it. This is the way to flourish. This is the good life that the Bible talks about. You know, as we've talked about previously in our church, this isn't so spiritual. It's really logical. Everything that you are doing is because you've sacrificed other things to get what you want. That's just the way it is. What you want is dictating what else you've been sacrificing. It's the same here. Uh, he's saying if you want to enter into this resurrection life in your body, we got to deny certain things and live to others. Finally, it's a public declaration to others who are walking. This is a very social activity, and that's why our church is so unusually packed here this morning, because people have come to support these four people in this decision, and that's what they're doing. They're asking you, this is what marriage used to be. It used to be it's hard in an individualistic culture like ours, but marriage used to be, hey, marriage is hard. That's what w- the wedding was. Marriage was hard and we've asked you all to come to help us through our through our, our our marriage. Our wedding parties are those that we've asked to keep us on the straight and to we've given you permission to pry to help us in our discipleship. That's what these baptizees are doing too. They're saying, hey, this is our church, this is our family, this is our friends. We want to follow Jesus in his way with you all. Would you help? Would you help? Our our community is being strengthened. So, friends, family, church, these people are asking for your help. When I was a kid, I was baptized in the Pacific Ocean on uh." Uh, where was that, Galeano uh, Island in Canada at night. And it was, it, was, it was a shocking experience, to say the least, in one, in one way. But it was also just, it was a spontaneous thing. It was beautiful. But I remember I went back to high school after this retreat. I went back to high school and I did something wrong. And someone pulled me aside at my high school and said, hey, I was there when you were baptized. Do you think that that lines up with your decision? And I went, mm, no, you're right. Because it was made clear at my baptism, Mike is asking for your help. He wants to walk with Jesus. He's asking for your help. I'm giving you the right to wound me. To say, hey, you're better than that. Let's keep going. Let's walk and vice versa. So that, this is a, uh, a, there's a community responsibility here.